Did you know? School Sport Victoria offers 650,000 sporting opportunities in 31 different sports. At 10,700 events across the state every single year. That's a lot of kids playing sport. And for over 25 years, the Victorian School Sports Awards have recognised more than 1,500 students, teachers and volunteers for excellence and outstanding contribution to school sport. Now that's a champion effort. Under the pressure of being pre-race favourite, Alastair Donoghue delivered in the C5 road race at the Parasiking World Championships. Donoghue rode away and won solo. Hello everybody. Um, welcome to episode 31 of our School Squad Victoria uh, Q&A. And we're live and I'm joined today by Look, you throw the word around champion sometimes, but this man has got a, an incredible resume. Um, I'm Howard Lewis, State Championships Officer at Schools for Victoria, and I'm very proud to introduce Alistair Donahue, um, who is joining us uh, from outside of Victoria. Hi, Alistair. Hey, Howard. How are you going? Good, thanks. I was a bit, bit stumbly on your uh, surname. Do you want to clear it up for me uh, uh, right up front? Yeah, sure. It's, it's to me, it's Donahoe. Um, Donahoe. That's how I've always pronounced it, how it's spelled. But yeah, I mean, you can cut it Donahue if you'd like. Yeah, I've been watching a bit of footage of you on YouTube through various things, and, and it does get a few different uh, pronunciations. But the main thing is they're talking about you. And I'm going to talk about you now for just, I'll keep it just brief for a minute, but you've got some incredible achievements. Um, you. Um, you're a six-time paracycling world champion, um, and that was that was just involved at, at 2020. You were a two-time silver medalist at the Rio Paralympics back in 2016. You're you're part of the Australian Cycling Academy, and you're part of the ARA Pro Racing Sunshine Coast, um, which is a pro cycling team. And you and I'll just introduce that. You do, I'll call it able-bodied cycling, or, and you also do paracycling as well. And um, you've got an amazing list of achievements as a junior, and you're uh, targeting, um, but you'll be, you'll clarify this for us, targeting some Paralympic gold in Tokyo, hopefully on the road and on the track in the pursuit team. Um, you've done some amazing achievements in your 25 years so far, mate. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it listens about everything. Yeah, spot on. Oh, I've got lots more detail, but um, it's it's really it's really great that you've taken the time to join us today. Um, we, you're part of the VIS as well, aren't you? Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm repping the VIS top right now just to be, yeah, to yeah. feel a little bit more Victorian. Yeah, but you're, you're not actually coming from to us today from Victoria. Where are you? Yeah, no, I'm up in um, in on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So I've kind of I've been based up here uh, ever since March. I um my team, the ARA Pro Racing Sunshine Coast, is they've got their base up here. So I came up 
yeah, earlier this year to, to race um, in the Oceania Championships were going to be held in Brisbane. And that was like the same time that, um, yeah, Australia just got hit by COVID and all the borders closed and, um, you know, like a lot of things got called off and all the racing got cancelled. And I was kind of just stuck in Queensland. I had to make a bit of a decision. Um, yeah, once I found out that, you know, I wasn't going overseas to compete in any world championships, that Tokyo had been postponed. And so it was like, you've just got to, you've just got to stay in Australia this year and, and train. So where's the best place to do that? And obviously I love home. I love Melbourne, but yeah, Melbourne winters can be pretty harsh and pretty brutal. I haven't actually faced one um, in the last six years and, and the thought of it didn't really like <laughs> uh, sit so well. So I thought, you know what, it's probably just better. I stay up in Queensland. And so, yeah, I just moved in with a friend that I knew up here and um, yeah, I've been up here ever since and hopefully get to come home soon. Yeah. So you, home's an interesting thing for you because you, you've moved around quite a bit and, and you obviously, your story um, so far is, is one of overcoming some pretty amazing obstacles um, and they are obstacles and you, you've negotiated around them. Um, um, I'm going to just, I've, I've done a little bit of research on you and, um, and, and please tell me if I'm on the right track or, or fill in some of the gaps for us as well. But you, as far as I know, you've, you've never been far from a bike as a kid um, and you always were out either on your BMX or and then mountain bike and, and training as well for, for junior road uh, races and stuff like that. But... Um, as I mentioned, some adversity um, came your way, and and you injured your right arm pr pretty pretty dramatically um, back when you were just 14, 15, and um, and we'll we'll talk about that. I think it's important that we do. But uh, you were you were kind of getting ready for some state championships, but this was all up in NT, wasn't it? You're a Northern ter Territorian. Yeah, yeah, at, at heart I am. I was born in like a pretty remote town um, called Nolanboy, which no one's ever heard of. And then I oh, and, moved. And thanks for pronouncing it for me. That, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you don't have to. Yeah, yeah. Nolanboy, <laughs> that's it. Um, and then I lived there until I was five, and then I moved to Darwin and, and grew up there until I was 14. And that's when I moved to Melbourne. Um, but yeah, yeah, spot on. I did all my kind of like childhood progression, got into cycling up there, like through and through, was hooked by the time I came down to Melbourne. Um, but yeah, that's also where I had my accident when I was 14 and got caught in a rope swing and, and damaged my um, arm, which you can kind of see what it looks like here. So I jumped out of a tree and got wrapped around the rope and it, it kind of, yeah, caught me and hung me by my arm and ripped through my tricep and bicep. So yeah, that was a little freak accident. And, and, that, um, and it could have been, I mean, you're, you've obviously got some limitations with your arm, but it, it could have been much worse too, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It could have been, um, yeah, really, really significant. I mean, the doctors were pretty impressed and surprised that you know, I got all my movement back, that I was just really, uh, really lucky that I was still young at the time. When you're 14, yeah. you know, you still got what's called neuroplasticity, where your nerves are still growing. Um, and I think if I had been 15 or 16 at the time, um, most, of the ne most of the radial nerve would have been, um, I guess, fully developed and I wouldn't have actually grown to have movement back in my hand or wrist, which, you know, for three months, I kind of had, yeah, nothing, no strength, no movement in my hand, and, but it eventually came back. So I'm super, super lucky about that. Um, yeah. But, you know, my family don't uh, ever hesitate to 
remind me that, you know, it could have been much worse as an accident. Like it could have been, you know, like the rope could have been around my neck or, or my waist or something, something much worse. So I think a bit of a community service out here as the, as the weather gets uh, warmer and warmer and more people will go swimming, maybe in, in near rivers and waterholes, you know, you've got to, got to be careful, you know, whatever you're doing, what's, what's under the water, but also the, the ropes is, uh, as well, of course. Um, but, but I can hear in your voice that you're, um, I can already hear a positive spin <laughs> on it, um, which is, which is always why it's great to have people like yourself because it's it's i do think it's a it's a really good story and it's just growing from there but bit back to you know you as a youngster you you were into other things even before probably settling more into cycling what what's just some of the the other sporting pursuits you did when you were pretty young yeah i think uh, i have i have memories of trying nearly everything i mean um, my, I'm the youngest of five, all my siblings did swimming. So I remember doing like swimming lessons, competitive swimming when I was younger. Um, I did little athletics, like, oh, I'm, I'm, no doubt a lot of the kids do. Um, I was, yeah, like a little active runner, um, was part of the runners club in Darwin. I think there was like for six months, I did gymnastics when I was 10, um, which was an unusual one. I did rugby union as well. Loved that. Too small. Um, <laughs> and then, um, ended up getting into triathlon like when I was about probably 11 years old through my parents were doing it locally up there, like just to stay fit. And I got into the junior series and found that I was like, you know, because I'd swum and because I'd run, I was actually quite good. And, um, but then like, I just really enjoyed the ride aspect of it. And then that actually was kind of like my transition into, um, into cycling. I didn't really like drowning in the swim. I didn't really like suffering on the run, but I loved scooting around really fast on the bike. And, um, and yeah, also just through um, my childhood, I'd always ride to school. You know, Darwin's like not not that big, and it was only five k's from my house to school. So I'd be late and belt that out in the morning. I think that kind of just gave me a good stead to, like, a, a, I guess a good base to most kids. Darwin's and I was, pretty flat too. Yeah, yeah, no, there was no <laughs> mountains to climb at all, so it was all pretty easy. Um, and then I'd just spend my weekends, like, you know, down the park with friends, like, with the skate park or we'd go into the bushes and create jumps. And, um, I'd just muck around for like, you know, six hours on end with them. And I guess we probably didn't, um, understand that, like, you know, having that much fun was actually still so beneficial for development. And, um, I got into BMX, I got into mountain biking. But then as I got a bit older, I really actually started to enjoy road and track cycling, which is a much smaller, I guess, the serious side of cycling. Um, and that's where I kind of settled. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the things that we can draw out of that is that you you, tr you tried everything and you're willing to give everything a go. And and that's what we kind of try and promote at School Sport Victoria. You know, it's great if, if someone wins an award it, it, or comes first, second or third in, in individual sports or plays team sports. We're all about just having as much participation and opportunities, um, and that's where you know we really hope schools can help foster that. So you're just a, a you know a testament to to all that kind of uh, activity that we're trying to. We just want kids to be active, so it's great. You're, you're like a, our perfect ambassador, um, and we have a great reaction relationship actually with the VIS so um, it's it's really great that you're on board um before before your accident though you you also 
um, had you know a, pr a pretty huge uh, life event happen to you um, and and your family. Um, do you want to? Are you able to touch on that for us, please? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, when I was eleven, my uh, my dad was unfortunately killed in an accident that just happened at home with um. Yeah, he got electrocuted when a, a tree fell onto a power line and the tree was still live and the, and the, the power hadn't actually been shut off and he touched the tree. And um, yeah, it is like, I guess, a pretty instant um, yeah reaction. And it was a big shock to the family as I guess it, it would be to anyone to, to lose a parent so suddenly. Um, so I was the, yeah, like I said, the youngest of five. So I had two brothers and two sisters and my mum. So I had just like, I guess, we had a big family to support each other and um we had like a great community around us and so i feel like yeah i definitely um like managed to to i guess get through that um as best as anyone could but also being 11 like it was pretty significant and i was pretty young so i probably didn't understand um yeah like how to uh, i guess process that and how to deal with that at such a young age but i feel like my sport had definitely actually helped me um yeah process those emotions and deal with it and also those emotions like really drove me to a lot of like great successes of i guess probably yeah my life and and definitely towards you know the rio olympics i have these distinct memories of yeah out training and and that being one of the largest motivators you know just thinking about my dad wanting to do like maybe make him proud or even just yeah even just using those like raw emotions as, as, a, as a big drive um and i did a lot of i guess um yeah the dealing with it and processing it later in life when i got a bit older and kind of understood it more so yeah it was a pretty big significant shock but i think just my family being so tight so loving and so um massive that it just you know helped us all really get through it well yeah oh, thanks thanks for sharing that and um the video we showed right at the start where you came across the line winning the event and um, it looked like yeah. a bit of a dad, but you're telling yeah. me there's a bit more to it. Do you, do you want to yeah. share that with us as well? Yeah, yeah. I've, got a, I've got a tattoo on my um, on my forearm, which is a, a homage to my dad, which just has his, you know, his full name and um, his birthday. And um, it definitely... Thanks, Raph. It definitely looks like a dad, but I feel like in 2018, dads weren't as much a thing. And it's definitely um, something I do when I, you know, when a significant event is, um, yeah, I give my tattoo and I point to him. And, and that's like a really meaningful thing to me. Um, and I really hope that people don't think it's a dad because it definitely isn't. Yeah, okay. Oh, that, that, that's, that's great. And um, we'll be looking for that um, when you were in, in Tokyo. Um, we do have a question that has come through, so we'll, we'll, we'll quickly go to that. Um, we've had a question from Peter, and it's, uh, how have you stayed active throughout the whole COVID crisis? Um, and it probably leads in a little bit to what I was going to ask at some stage about kind of your training regime and stuff like that, but I was, maybe just focus on the COVID side and we'll come back to the training side. And yeah, like, definitely. Um, there's kind of like two probably more significant things that I've done to stay active during COVID. So one of them, I bought a mountain bike, um, which doesn't seem like significant. Like I ride a road bike all the time, but, um, I think just because every single bit of racing 
kind of got stripped away um, and a lot of people took breaks as soon as COVID happened, but I was in a, a big training phase that I was quite focused on and I thought, you know what, like, yeah, we don't have any racing, doesn't mean you have to stop. And I was, I was pretty determined to keep training, keep getting better because, yeah, my goal shifted, but it's just, it's like getting an extension on an assignment. So, like, I still have to just keep training, keep getting better because everyone I'm competing against is doing exactly the same. So if I stop, then I'll get left behind. So the mountain bike was a big thing for me because it really kept me fresh. Like I could go, I could train five times a week on my on my road bike, and then you know chop it with two two days on the mountain bike just to keep it like I guess things new, ride some trails, ride through the forest, and things like that. I get to explore more of Queensland that way as well. And then the other way is um, which people in in um, Victoria have to be all too familiar with with the pretty serious lockdowns is that there's a program called Zwift where you attach your bike to a smart trainer like an ergo and um, you log online I use this laptop and I can race anyone in the world who's also on Zwift and they have some different courses and it's it's live it's kind of like an online computer game how hard you go controls how fast your rider on the screen goes and and you can race against each other and um, that was like a pretty significant um, early on through like April, May, June, I did a lot of Zwift probably like two to three times a week. Um, but it was great because I got to see like my old coach in Victoria, a lot of my teammates who were down south who were also locked up and you kind of got that like, got to scratch that racing itch as well, like that competitive sense because they have these online races and when you couldn't, you know, in the heart of COVID when everything was locked down, there was absolutely no sporting events on. So if you wanted to like, race against someone you had to do it online which was also a great motivator so that was really drove me through um yeah how to stay active but also i guess being um new to the sunshine coast in queensland i didn't really have like that much else to do like you weren't allowed to be social like you know cafes and restaurants were shut um so i really had like no choice except staying at home or going training and i just did a phenomenal amount of um kilometers i did i think i, I was averaging between like eight nine hundred k's a week you know sometimes up to 30 hours on the bike just because i was like well the, the other option is just being bored at home so i just did so much and i mean like it's good but also bad because it can get pretty um you can get pretty exhausted unintentionally from that yeah and and rest is and we'll talk about that a little bit later too but you know rest mm -hmm. is really important in your in in recovery um yeah, I, I, I'm, I've been the same. I'm, I'm kind of not the, not in the same age bracket as you. Um, I, I have been referring to myself as a mammal, which people might know as a middle-aged man and like it, but, but I've had a significant um, birthday and, and now I think I'm a seal. I'm kind of like a senior, senior elderly person in Lycra. So, uh, um, but I did join the kind of the Zwift uh, community as well and, and SSV also had to and this word's been bandied around quite a bit but pivot because we didn't have our normal sport and we had to kind of go to uh, create some virtual challenges and, and we had virtual cross country and virtual track and field because you could at least go out and exercise and, and we had lots of kids involved in that which we, we were pretty happy that we could help encourage kids to be active but Zwift you know, it, it, and other programs like that. It, it's a really big growing virtual space. And if anybody is a keen cyclist, uh, kids, 
I, I think there is a real community feel to it. There's messaging going on. There's different rides. Uh, I, I was even, which is a bit of kind of obsessive, I was watching the virtual Tour de France where pros from all around the world were logging in and, and, and doing basically a stage of the Tour de France. Um, so it is a, an amazing thing if people, you know, are looking for something else in the virtual space um, because unfortunately we, you know, COVID will be with us for a little bit longer. Um, I'm going to keep moving and just go back a little bit. Um, and you mentioned that you, you know, you got involved in junior triathlons and, and normally in in probably right around Australia, the, the Wheatbix Triathlon Series is something that um, that comes up, and and it's a really good introduction for kids to to try a sport like triathlon, which has those three disciplines of of uh, swimming and and uh, cycling and running without without being you know it's not a huge swim. Um, it's not, they're not really, you know, they're not Ironman events. So um, you obviously came through that kind of pathway, as you said, and got into your cycling. But um, I was reading on Wikipedia that someone, it's a Michael Gallagher in, um, in NT, um, kind of also helped steer you towards the paracycling side of things. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think um, oh, Michael Gallagher's in um, yeah, he's Victorian based in, okay. in Melbourne. Um, but yeah, it was, that was right. Like um, I was training at the time. I think for maybe I, w- I would have been about seventeen and um, training for the state team. Like I think we we're training for national titles on the velodrome. So I was there with Victoria, um, and he was also. I think at that time he was training for the London Olympics, uh, Paralympics, I should say, and. Um, so he was like in the same training sessions as us and he was actually you know, far better than us and um, rolling around, you know, like mid training session, I'm just chatting to him and he's like, oh yeah, you're like, I, I noticed you've got a bit of a funny arm. Like, I'm not really, um, you know, sure on the specifics, but you should go get classified, which is the system when you get, I guess, um, if you've got an injury or a disability and you want to get into paracycling or any sort of parasport, they have to classify you because it's different categories. So like I don't, for example, compete against someone who's like missing a leg. It's all in cycling terms, it's grouped into five different categories. You've got the least affected and the most affected. So, you know, missing an arm and a leg is the most affected. And, and you know, someone with a small injury to their arm like me is um, the least affected. And so he fell into that category. He um, had something called herbs palsy. His right arm didn't develop at the same rate as his left. So he's like much skinnier on that right side than the left. Um, which, yeah, similar to me, it's just like a strength disadvantage and probably a little bit of function. Um, and so, yeah, he uh, yeah he was like, you should go get classified. And then a year later, um, I had the opportunity to do, like there was a race in, in Melbourne that I think the Paracycling National Champs were on and I was there. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll try this out. I'll go get classified. And I fit just into the the very top edge of the least affected category. So um, I was pretty lucky. Uh, well, I, I don't know if lucky. I mean is in the sense that, you know, like when I went to the, to get classified, they're like, you're borderline, not disabled, disabled, I guess is the way to put it. Um, and so then when I went to, they said, sure, this is great. We'll take you to a world championships because you have to get classified internationally as well before you could race. And then I went there and I was borderline, but I was in. And then 
I got third at my first world championships and then suddenly the, the I guess the Australian paracycling team were like, oh, wow, <laughs> like, um, you know, you're 18, you got third and like we've got Rio in three years. So this is like definitely a progression and the target towards, you know, a medal at the Rio Olympics. And so then that's when probably like there was a big shift between doing, I guess, yeah, the Abelbot stuff for me as a focus to then suddenly like, oh, I could actually go to the Paralympics and I could, you know, potentially win a medal. So that became like my next three years of training towards that. And and the Paralympics, um, you you're not just a road cyclist, which is which is really a team team sport. And a lot of people have a bit of trouble understanding that it's a team sport. But you're also you you do also compete in track as well. Um, do you want to just explain a bit for for our kids who are listening, or even our, the parents who are listening, um, a bit about the road side of things and also the track side of things that you do? Because you're, yeah. you're multi, multidisciplinarian within cycling. Yeah, I guess um, like the easiest analogy to put it is kind of looking at like Usain Bolt in the 100 metre sprint or, you know, the 400 metre, you know, around the track and field compared to like the Tour de France with road cycling. So, or no, compared to the marathon. So you've got like a 400 or 800 metre runner who runs for just a few minutes. And then you've got the marathon runner who runs for two hours. Yeah, right. They do the same sport, but it's kind of completely different athletes in, in a way. So track cycling is very much like that track and field where, you know, their longest event um, would kind of be like half an hour long um, at the most. But most of the, like the key event that the, the, that we focus on at both the Olympics and the Paralympics is about four minutes long. So as you can imagine, like you've got to be really strong, really powerful, have great lungs, but it's much more about your muscles and, and things like that. And then the road cycling side of things is, um, yeah, all about endurance, about like going up hills and, and battling that sort of terrain. But then the, the most significant difference is that most of the things on the track, like the, the events I compete in at the Paralympics are solo. So it's just for the Paralympics, it's me against the clock over four kilometres, you know, and, and, and it's like that for every athlete. They go out there on their own, they do the time. Um, it's all the same for everyone and it's whoever has the quickest time wins. So for me, I'm aiming to, to ride around four minutes, 20 for four kilometers and hope that no one else can ride that quick. But then I turn around to the road and they say, uh, this is the course, it's a hundred kilometers long. And then they just blow a whistle and everyone starts and, you know, you're like biffing and bashing with different people and there's lots of tactics involved. Um, and it's just literally the first one across the line. You know, that can take you two hours. That can take you four hours. It doesn't matter. Um, and each course is different. Each course favors a different rider. Um, the tactics of a different rider can affect you. And, and that goes for everyone. There's, you know, 50 people in the race. So it's quite like a game of chess between everyone. Um, and that's the sort of riding and racing that I really enjoy because it's super competitive. It's super complicated. Um, and there's, I guess, a massive thrill when you cross the line, you know, you've won. Um, but yeah, the track is also kind of, can be quite exciting at times, but it's probably a little less exciting and a little more physiology focused because there's so many different things you can com control and you literally just, it's about how fit you are, how strong you are, how fast you are. And obviously the person who's most, the person who's most prepared can win, but I've gone to road events in my top form, got into a race and come 10th because 
you know, like I've been marked out of the race by other people or, you know, injured or crashed or I've gone in not thinking I'll go very well and managed to play my car and drive and win. So I really like that side of um, road cycling where you can make mistakes and really amend for them, but then you can also just use a lot of grit and determination to win against the odds. So it's really like, I think road cycling is really exciting, but there's also a significant difference in the bikes with track cycling. Your bike has one gear and it doesn't stop pedaling. So if the back wheel is moving, then the pedals are moving and to, and it doesn't have brakes. So to slow down, you just need to like apply pressure kind of backwards and, and you come to a slow stop. Um, obviously in, in road cycling, you've got like a conventional bike with two brakes and a lot of gears and you can stop pedaling if you want to. So um, there's those kind of differences on the bikes as well. And, and back to the road and that, and you're part of a team up in on the Gold Coast, uh, sorry, Sunshine Coast. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the team? But also, can you explain a bit, you know, some everybody has sometimes a different role as well. And mm-hmm. um, and not every day is going to be your day to be the one who's going to hopefully get across the line first because you are, it's a team, that's where it's a team sport. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Because I think that's the aspect that people sometimes have a bit of trouble with when they're under, trying to understand um, road racing and, and, and then leading into things like Tour de France where people don't quite, quite get it. So that might help explain things for people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, cycling is a really interesting, I guess, or road cycling is a really interesting sport because... It's a team-based sport. It's 100% team-based sport. Like in the Tour de France, you can't just, you know, it's not like you're good enough and you compete. It's 18 teams get to go and those teams have 20 riders each, like on the roster of 25 and they'll choose seven. So like seven people from each 18 teams get to go. So that makes up a field of, you know, close to 200. Um, but, uh, it's basically like they don't necessarily choose the best seven on their team and they choose like one or two leaders and then they choose a team around that to see like, okay, who's going to help this one person win? So when you look at the Tour de France and Cabell Evans won, um, you know, back in, I think it was 2011, um, you know, his team went there with the goal that he would win the Tour de France and each person on that team had to work every day to make sure that Cabell Evans was, in the best position he could be. And there's people getting him food, there's people getting him water, there's people sitting in front of him, breaking the draft, and there's people helping him if he had a crash, if he got injured, if he had a puncher, like give, someone would pull over, if he if he has got a flat tire, someone would pull over and just give them their bike and say, you know, Cadell, you ride, and I'll, I'll, I'll wait for the car to come and get me a bike. So it's all about this time saving thing. And, and each guy's there with a particular role and, that's that's the team aspect of um, of road cycling, and it's kind of interesting from the outside to look in and think, oh, if you look at it like a marathon, which I you know I don't run, so I'm going to typically assume that in a marathon you've got 50 people, the gun goes, and just the fastest guy wins. And I know it's not as simple as that, but it in a way it quite it kind of is. Like you know the the person who's the best in the world at the time who has the most form kind of wins every marathon kind of that they they enter they've got the faster time yada yada but in road cycling like each race nearly has a different victor and if i was 
in a race uh, with yourself and my other person and you two were against me, it would actually be incredibly hard for me to win just due to drafting and tactics. Um, so that's where it's kind of quite interesting when it's two against one or three against two or if you're outnumbered, you have to be really crafty and better than the other people to win. Now, like, you can be crafty and worse than a win and you can be better and silly and lose. So it's it's a fantastic sport in, in that sense because the victor is always different depending on the course, depending on the day. Um, now, good people often win a lot, but they don't. They can never win all the time. And I think in cycling, you lose more than you win. And that's one of the again, pretty beautiful things about it as well. So those, like, those victories are so few and far between. Um, but, you know, when a teammate of mine wins, like I feel the victory as well, especially if I've been a massive part of it. You know, this, this, one of my favourite jobs is, is leading someone out to a victory and you just feel so, I guess, ecstatic. And, um, yeah, you feel like a massive team camaraderie and the celebrations in the bus afterwards and the champagne with dinner <laughs> and all those fantastic things, even though, like, on the result sheet, you know, like Joe Blog over here is actually you know, cross the line first, it's like, yeah, there's six guys behind him who are all kind of celebrating and feeling like they've won because they all know that he wouldn't have won without them and that's the way the sport goes and everyone in the sport understands that. It's just those outside of the sport who look on and think like, oh, you know, like Howard, how come you didn't finish that race? You must not be very good, but they don't understand that you tore yourself inside out for the first three hours of that race and then your job is done and your team says, get in the car, Howard, like day's over. You've done everything you need to do. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's like that with cycling. Thanks for that. That, that was really great explanation for everybody and, um, and, and how it is a team sport. And, um, and you talked, we kind of brought in the Tour de France analogy, which of course is probably the, the best, the biggest and the be, um, most well-known um, multi-stage event. Uh, in the world, but you had some amazing success uh, in the in the Herald Sun Tour. Um, so we know about the Tour de France this year. You talked about Cadell Evans, but Richie Port from Tasmania actually finished on the podium this year in the Tour de France, which is an amazing achievement within itself. But you you went better than Richie uh, on one of the stages at the Herald Sun Tour, finishing at the top or at least going over uh, Arthur's seat down on the Mornington Peninsula, and you won that day. Um, we, we did have a little bit of footage playing there in the background. Um, oh, we've, we've got some more footage now that we might talk about a little bit later if we get time. But um, can you tell us about that day uh, on the Mornington Peninsula? Because And the Herald Sun Tour is how many stages these days? It's, is it uh, I think it's six, six stages, the Herald Sun Tour, yeah. yeah. And that was um, day four, I think, or something like that. That so. would have been day five. So that was, yeah, that was, would have been 2009 Sun Tour. Um, yeah, we finished on Arthur's seat. We started in Cape Shank and we did four laps of um, of Arthur's. I think they were going to do five, but there was like a, a kind of a bushfire scare, so they shortened it just so we could finish it a little bit earlier. Um, but, yeah, I think, like, that's a, that's a perfect example Um of how how great cycling is in terms of the tactics of the of the day and the race and you know like it was the queen stage we did a lot of climbing that day and Richie Port was arguably one of like you know in the top three climbers in in the world um, climbers 
for those zone standards and people who go uphill. So basically, like, you know, when you're fighting against gravity, cycling gets really hard and some people are really, really good at it and he's one of the best. Um, and I would not uh, for a second think that I am even in the same league as, um, as Richie. He's like a phenomenal climber. Um, but yeah, like cycling is just such a, such a good sport. I managed to get in the breakaway that day. Um, and, you know, he wouldn't have been thinking about, you know, me up the road a couple of minutes up ahead, um, quite naturally in cycling that, you know, there's a bunch of people who go up the road and, and try to get ahead of, ahead of the peloton, um, and hope that they don't get caught, um, you know, by, by the finish line. And sometimes the peloton, which is the largest group on the road, they stuff up the chase and they don't quite catch you in time. Or sometimes they try just as hard, but, you know, that's just the people out front are too strong. Um, and I just thought, you know, my best chance of success this day was to get ahead and, and not try climb at the same pace as them, but, you know, just got to ride as hard as I can. I was with some really phenomenal people. Um, and yeah, on the results sheet, um, it shows that I was, you know, like one second ahead of Richie Port and, and Mike Woods and, um, some, yeah, some pretty phenomenal Tour de France riders. Um, but, you know, <laughs> the reality does go that they were one second behind catching me. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, like, it's just everyone starts at the same time and everyone hits whoever crosses the finish line first and that's the beauty of it and the tactics that day I managed to um I managed to beat them and yeah it's 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 a pretty great feeling and um yeah like it was just a ride of my life um and it's just yeah pretty phenomenal and took a chance and paid off one of the rides of your yeah we had one of the rides of my life yeah that's for sure um you you talked about climbers um let's let's hear a bit we'll get a little bit personal I said you were 25 what is your height? What is your weight? Um, yeah, well, like, it depends if you're talking my coat. Well, my height doesn't change with COVID, but my weight <laughs> changes with COVID. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm 170 centimetres. So I'm not, I'm not massive, pretty short, short, which is, you know, good for cycling, but, um, yeah. I, I'm sure I'd like to be a little bit bigger. Um, and then, yeah, it depends. I mean, at that, at that stage at the Herald Sun Tour, I would have been probably about 60 kilos flat. Um, at the moment, I've, with a with a big focus on the track for me now, I want to get a bit bigger, a bit mostlier. I'm 65 kilos now, but which is still, I guess, by anyone's standard, pretty small. Um, I, I just wanted to ask that because you know, so and cyclists come in different sizes as well, as you said. You know, mm. track track some of the track guys are huge, or track women too. Uh, mm. You know, it's all it's all about strength and muscle, and then you've got smaller guys and really lean guys who who are phenomenal climbers on the road and and then you've got sprinters as well who again is power but but having of course they all need uh quite a bit of endurance um what's it what's it you've been out for a ride to oh sorry today's probably not a good example i know you did a, a corporate uh ride but what would how, how far would you normally ride on a typical day for training if you could call a typical day. Yeah, typical day. I mean, I guess I probably at the moment I ride about, you know, 600Ks a week. And over that's over like five major training days um, with with two each day that I might ride 30Ks. But yeah, on Thursday, on both Wednesday and Thursday, I rode about 130Ks each. Um, yeah, I might clock up close to 140, 150 on both Saturday and Sunday. So some days are longer than others. I mean, if, you know, if I've got a big endurance day, it can be close to 200. It also depends. Wow. If you go up hills, if you go up hills, you go slower. If you go on the flat, you obviously go a lot faster. So my training's done on hours. Um, 
you know, by my coach, he says, go this day, go do this many hours. And if I have to do these efforts and do these sprints and that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just like look at the program and then clock in. But yeah, it's, it's usually a pretty typical day. It doesn't feel like training if I've done less than 100 Ks. Uh, and it feels like a big day if I've done over 150 or so. You're going to tell me uh, you're just getting warmed up at 100 Ks probably. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and, and, and it wouldn't be just out on the road as well. Um, there'd be other parts to your training as well. Uh, we yeah. had some footage of you doing some uh, some weights. And yeah, tell us a bit about some of the, the other sessions that you would do in, in, in your whole training regime. Yeah, so like... That's a big, yeah, pretty important part of it. Um, at the moment, I have two gym sessions a week. So gym for us is pretty, um, yeah, integral. It's a lot about not losing muscle mass. It's really, really hard to gain muscle mass when you're doing any sort of endurance. Like if you're a, if you're a strength and conditioning coach and someone came to you and said, like, I want to put on size, they would be like, all right, stop all running, stop all cardio. So for me to think, you know, to wish that I could put on one kilo of muscle is pretty hard, but with so much endurance, you can actually eat into the muscle. Um, so for us, it's a lot about maintenance, but you can also get these awesome strength gains. And then also just really working on those stabilizing muscles and that core stability and, and those glute activations. So gym is a massive part um, of my training kind of year in, year out. When competitions come, they, they tuck the gym away because it's, um, it makes you pretty sore. It's pretty taxing, but for most of the year round, it's, it's there. Um, at the moment, I still have one to two velodrome sessions uh, a week as well. So I'll have to drive you know, an hour to Brisbane um, and jump on the track and, and spend a few hours there, which is you know pretty boring training, but it's all, it's all really hard. It's like you sit around and then you get up and you go absolutely maximum for you know, a few um, yeah a few minutes and then you go sit down again and, and just like cry to yourself. Um, <laughs> But then, yeah, like I mentioned, some days they just say, you know, go do four to five hours, just build that aerobic base and just get that that real fitness endurance going. And then some days, um, you know, I look at my program and it's like a massive amount of notes about how long, how much I have to go hard, how hard, how much rest I need. You know, sometimes you need to cut and paste it and put on your on your bike so you can actually remember what's going on. Um, but, you know, they're the real days that make a difference. And, you know, sometimes it can be as simple as go do this hill as hard as you can five times. Some days it's like, you know, go hard for a minute, go moderate for two minutes, sprint for 30 seconds, take five minutes rest, repeat that eight times. Um, and, and those days, are, I guess, are the least enjoyable because it's kind of up to you about, you know, how hard you can push yourself, which is kind of a pretty interesting aspect of cycling because being a team sport you know like when you rock up to a race everyone's there racing together everyone's doing the same thing but um then a lot of the time after the race everyone says like see you later get to the airplane and flies back to their different homes and then you know the team says all right we'll see you in three weeks at this next race and then you have to sit there for three weeks and your coach gives you a training program and you've got to interpret that to the best of your ability. Like you, it's about how hard you push. And a lot of it is quite isolating. You don't rock up to a team training session and, and you know, patting your, patting your mates on the back and getting really psyched up and all doing the same thing together. Um, but again, that's one of the beauties of why I'm up here with my team, um, RA Pro Racing Sunshine Coast, because, you know, we, I've got about 10 teammates who are living here on the Sunshine Coast and they're from all different parts of Australia and they've all based themselves up here. So we can kind of have that culture 
and so that we can train together and really push each other and and not be so isolated and, and when i'm back home in melbourne um yeah i just train with friends but none of them are on my team they're all doing different things to me and it's, it's so much nicer to be able to go to the gym with my team and then go on certain training sessions with my team and then go have coffee with them as well afterwards and and really build that camaraderie so when it comes to racing you know you know we spent the most time together we're going to work and we're going to gel together and um and we know exactly what to do and i think that's you know one of the kind of amazing things about being up here on the coast as much as i love melbourne um and of course you've got to put fuel into this body to keep pumping out all those training sessions mm-hmm. that's a, that's a key um key key ingredient in, in your success um i'm assuming the team would have some dietary advice and 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 things that are good good to eat and not good and steer away from things that are not good to eat and also rest and recovery i mean there's times you've got to really put your feet up and get off your legs and and i'm curious what what advice do they give you about how much sleep you should have as well yeah i think sleep's one of the um yeah one of the biggest things and i've kind of i guess over the years realized i mean like as you know up until last year i'd even say i hated sleep i mean it's like it's time spent you know doing nothing when i could be doing something i want to do like i'm very social i'm full of energy and i find it hard to sit still and i never prioritize sleep but at the same time there's some really great advice saying that you know like you don't actually get better from training you get better from sleeping because that's when you do most of your recovery and you know everyone learns that training you train to to break your body down so then it recovers stronger than it was and so you got to build those blocks and you got to you know get slowly get better and i think that's like it's, it's clear that sleep is the uh the most important thing you can have all the protein shakes in the world you can have you know you can do ice baths you can do massages but you know like sleep is is, is king so it's pretty hard for me to prioritize that naturally but i i manage to now and um i find it especially hard in queensland because everyone gets up incredibly early here and that's just like kind of not in my nature but i'm trying like 6 a.m is quite late like you could easily get up at 4 a.m and there'd be cars on the road there'd be people doing things they don't have daylight savings so the sun rises at 4 30. it gets so hot people just get up and do whatever they have to do early and um which also means i have to go to bed at like 8 30 which i feel like a grandpa when i have to do that but you know like you know, kind of you just gotta have that mental shift and change your clocks and pretend that you're back in melbourne but yeah we have um yeah the team has access to these recovery pools at the university um we've got you know recovery boots we've got people who can give us massages if we need it um they also have a nutritionist but i'm lucky enough that with the vis back home i work with my own um nutritionist kylie there and she's great and i've worked there for a few years and so um i guess i've been in it for so long that now it's kind of all pretty well ingrained i don't i don't need to have that many regular meetings unless i need to get something checked or if i just need a refresher because sometimes even just useful to hear the same information that you know kind of just repeated to you um I live off hummus a lot, so I've got a little, like a one kilo tub just oh, sitting here. We, we have on. Yeah, it's a great. It's uh, in my veins, um, so I feel like any any athlete that wants to go well just have to eat hummus. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of things that um, yeah you the the really simple things um, that you learn when you're young are actually quite true. And so the simplest things I've learned, which is the um, the most practical. I mean, like I love to get into the science of, of training and nutrition 
and and all that, but they basically just say like eat enough food, eat different colors, and get enough sleep. And like I guess it's it's pretty annoying when you break it down like that and you think oh like that's actually all I have to do. Like I I thought it'd be so much more exciting, so much more complicated. But you can like if you just follow those three steps, you can't really go wrong. Um, my quest next question is: What advice would you give you? give your 12 year old self knowing what you know now and as you said you you have been in the system quite a while now and you even though you're you're only 25 you, you are becoming a little bit of a veteran so uh, you you've given some really good advice about eating different colors sleeping uh, eating hummus is there anything else that you would give your 12, 12 year old self uh, some knowledge yeah it's it's actually quite interesting. I mean, like I don't know if if there's things I would do differently when I was twelve. I think I'd give any twelve year old, I guess probably the advice to just make sure they keep having fun because, um, yeah, it can get pretty serious pretty quickly. But I feel like you don't actually have to get serious as quick as you think you do. I mean, like yeah, twenty five is both old and young in in a lot of sports um yeah i've been doing it for so long but also like you know people can come to cycling at the age of 25 and still have success um and i think yeah i would probably i wouldn't really change much i mean i used to eat you know bucket loads of mcdonald's and do, <laughs> not care a thing and and obviously jump out of ropes and, and and have all this fun but i think that's also like one of the keys to my success was that you know i built all these skills when i was so young um, I'd probably tell myself to get into hummus at an earlier age for probably only sounded when I was like 16. Um, but other than that, like, I really can't, like, I don't think there's any serious stringent advice for a 12 year old because I feel like they're just too young to, to oh, need to I, take I, it that seriously. Or like I was definitely, and I think I'd probably say be a bit more sensible, take less risks, but other than that, just keep having fun. I, I think your advice about having fun, and I think that applies to everybody of every age. You know, you got to build some fun into your life. You got to play as well as as being serious. I mean, th these are all parts that you should try and build into your day and build into your life. Um, there's been a massive surge in cycling. I know. I know. Uh, cycling shops have been kind of smashed during COVID because. It was one of the things that you could go out and do and and it gave everybody a little sense of freedom and i think you've always been someone who from it sounds like from an early age you jump on your bike you you're off exploring and you and you're feeling freedom um i go out for a ride this morning around the uh the boulevard in ivanhoe and i see i see people a bit younger than me and there seems to be a bit of a gap between people going out, just riding their bike to school or riding for fun, uh, maybe with their family, because that's increased a lot. How do you kind of, how did you go from being fun cycling to a bit more serious? You know, were you involved in clubs? You know, how did you get into track? How did you get into road? Um, because I see lots of people cycling, but I don't see many teenagers um, and not many girls actually uh, out there as, as well. Bit of a long question. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's a long question, but it's a really interesting one because, yeah, if you were just breaking into the sport, you wouldn't know where to start at all. I guess I was pretty lucky that 
you know, through triathlon in Darwin, um, there was a really keen, like one of the best triathletes up there. Um, yeah, I had a few sons and one was my age and he wanted to start. He saw the lack of a junior kind of development scene up there and um, he wanted to kind of start and incorporate um, something like that up in Darwin. So I was kind of one of the uh, one of the people who got roped in and because Darwin's not massive, you know, like a lot of the triathletes are part of the cycling club, you know, the triathletes are part of the running club, the mountain bikers are part of the cycling club. So it's all kind of cross interconnected. So there was a lot of, um, like the cycling club was made up from a lot of different aspects. And so once I got kind of brought into that and there was a, a kind of, you know, basically like 10 juniors, you know, all kind of different ages, that's how we kind of fell into it. And Darwin had a really old crappy velodrome that we used to go to on, you know, like a Tuesday night and do skills and do some racing. Um, but then they also had like local races, which, and, and, and really like, you know, local morning bunch rides as well. So um, that were like fantastic training, a bit of a competitive outlet. You know, you had the cyclists and the triathletes all coming to the same bunch to do, you know, a really hard ride on a Saturday morning. And then you had a local race on a Thursday night. Um, and I guess I was exposed to it um, at that age, but it was all just through the local Darwin Cycling Club. And then when I moved to Melbourne, um, you know, I was 15 and I probably went for six months not not really riding much because I was in a new city, new town, like didn't really know where to start. Knew that there was a lot of, a lot more competitive racing in, in Melbourne, but didn't know how to get into it. And then um, just did like a little bit of research, just joined um, Blackburn Cycling Club, which had a great junior development program. Now there's a few in Melbourne, like, um, you know, the, like one of the largest clubs is Carnegie Caulfield Cycling Club. Then you've got St Kilda Cycling Club. Hawthorne have a great junior program. Blackburn have a great junior program. And it was just through that that just picked a, picked a cycling club. I lived in Hawthorne, joined Blackburn. Um, they were great. There was a lot of juniors there. There was some really great junior coaches. And then just they kind of introduced you to the racing, which you don't realise is on all the time. And Melbourne's such a great place because like I think you can race locally for about one hour nearly four to five days a week if you want to during summer um and that kind of exposure was like skyrocketing for me because I was just such a competitive kid that as soon as I started and then you know those those clubs also jump on the track as well so you know during summer you're racing you know around the you know the Q Boulevard in Hawthorne or you know around the Sandown Raceway on a Tuesday night and then when that finishes once summer's over you do racing um, at the Darabin Indoor Sports Centre you know which is the indoor velodrome there or you know at a bunch of local velodromes around and and I think so the key is just if you get in contact with a cycling club they have and it's not like you get in that and then suddenly you just have to bang race against like you know state champions and and these really like experienced people who've been doing it since they were 11 they have all these different um, you know stages and and you know people who are rocking up on borrowed bikes you know in no lycra because they've never you know they don't own it they don't want it cycling such a hard sport to get into because a lot of a lot of the aspects of it are so expensive that it kind of kind of stop you because you're like oh if I don't know if I like this will I invest in a you know thousand dollar bike will I buy these really expensive shoes and this really expensive outfit but the great thing is that when you're really like trying to get into it there's people who are willing to help and like I donate my second hand like you know i'll wear my team clothing for one year 
and then I give it to my club and my club can give it to any sort of junior who's coming through who that can't afford it or doesn't have any yet. Um, so there's always this like, you know, this, this trickle of payment down stuff that can kind of get you in the door. If you want to think, you know, maybe try to one of the come and try days that the clubs have and stuff like that. So it really starts with the, the local cycling club and then the sky's the limit from there. Like if you're good enough, you just, you just start racing elites. Like I was 17 and racing, um, you know, like, you know, with the, with the top guys in Melbourne. So I got exposed to it quite young and, and just kind of went from there. Uh, that's, that's great advice. I, I, I live on the north side, as you do um, when, you're, when you're back based in Melbourne, and I know clubs like Brunswick have had a resurgence. Yeah. And, and, um, and, of course, there's plenty of, you know, there's areas around regional Victoria which where cycling is huge as well. So mm. you know, there, there's clubs everywhere, and I think you've given everybody some really great advice there. To, to take that kind of leap from and getting a little bit more serious and, and also getting into it without having to spend, as you said, what can be at times, you know, a pretty uh, expensive sport. Uh, if, you, if you go down the gear freak kind of um, hobby that, that some of us do as well. Um, can you take us just quickly? I know time's against us and you, you've got commitments, so we're, we're probably coming down in the last couple of minutes. But um, back at Rio um, in the Paralympics, you were in a battle heading towards the um, the line in the road race and there was an incident, um, pretty controversial. Um, can you take us through that a little bit? And yeah. What, um, and I'll just finish. Um, that must be burning inside you for Tokyo as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know the, it was slide on the screen before if anyone caught it. But um, yeah. yeah, I was in in my key event at, at Rio, which is the road race. Um, which is that, about was it eighty four kilometers or was yeah, it I think so. No, I think it was it was definitely between eighty and ninety k's. Um, it was about between two fifteen to two and a half hours. Um, and yeah, had been racing the whole time and, and it come down to, to three of us um, at the finish, kind of going for the win. Um, and then I had, I, I guess, a kind of a rival, someone who um, who I often went neck and neck with. He was one of the, one of the best guys there. Um, so I'd, I'd you know, raced him for the few years coming through, seen him at these world championships. He'd beaten me, I'd beaten him on a few. Um, and he won the first two events of the Paralympics, the pursuit and the time trial, but the road race was my favorite and key event. And I was defending champion, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, we came into the sprint and, um, like he was in front of me, which is, you know, a good tactic in my behalf, you know, drafting him and then coming around with 200 meters to go to, to overtake him and, and win. And, um, as I started passing him, you know, we're on a road, there's barriers that line the road and we're slightly to the left and I'm, I'm coming up inside and then he just decided well he's going to overtake me so i'm just going to push him into the barriers um and yeah he did that and we kind of had a bit of a tussle for a bit before you know like he squished me into the barriers and we both crashed um but we we crashed quite literally 10 meters from the line um and you know before even thinking i kind of just stood up and jumped across the line um yeah to you know just to try to get across the line because i didn't really think anything of it and um and so yeah, I was first across the line at Rio, but um, on a technicality, I 
didn't get awarded the gold medal because my bike never crossed the line, which is like they actually yeah. kind of just they just measure your front wheel. Um, yeah. so I didn't I didn't know the technicality. The the judges didn't either. Like you know, they initially they gave me the win and they realised that oh. actually this guy behind me has arguably has to win. So um, yeah, it was kind of that catch twenty two where they were like, oh, we actually really like we know you crossed the line first. We want to give it to you. Technically, we have to give it to him. We can't change the rules right now. We can change them later. So yeah, I end up getting I think given you know fifth or sixth um, eventually, and yeah, but to me that didn't really matter. I mean, like I was seeing, I was seeing gold. I'd had two silver medals. Um, not that another one isn't great, but I didn't really mind whether I got second or or, or last. I kind of just wanted to win. Um, so yeah, having that kind of un- pretty unsportsman um, like act happened to me was it was tough. It was a hard pill to swallow, but it definitely just added coal to the fire towards um tokyo that's for sure I, I hadn't really thought about tokyo until you know i was sitting there that night and i was like you know what i've got four years to prepare to redeem this so that's what i've done so t- tell us what's what's the plans for tokyo what 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 what's the dream what's the ambition for well i think it's a hard one to oh, i can't give away too much what if my competitors watch this but yeah, um sure. no <laughs> no that's not true um yeah it's it is a tough one because you know we went into rio thinking all right there's three events that you've done really well in the world championships you know i was going in um having one two of them at the time and it's like the the, the difficulty with the olympics is that like i talked about how how different you got to be for the track and the road you know like the 400 meter runner compared to the marathon um and it's it's a really hard thing because you know usually those world championship events are six months apart, whereas the, the Olympic Games, you know, they're, they're four days apart. You know, I have to race for four minutes and be the best I can in the in the world at over four minutes, and then after I have to be the best I can over two hours. And and you know, like if you get the balance right, I guess you can be the best for both of them. But if someone comes through and specialises purely in four minutes, um. Yeah, they might beat you at that, and then the next guy comes through and, and specialises in the road race, and he's got way more endurance, and they beat you at that, and then suddenly you're left with two, or two or three bronze medals, or or fourth places, or second places. And um, so, so I'm still in the process of trying to work out, you know, really like, you know, do I give, do I try and win three gold medals like I tried to in Rio, or do I just specialise in one, go in all guns blazing for that, come home with a definite gold, and and then see see what else because it's it's not to say that you can't like the beauty of the road race is that anyone can win so you don't it's, it's really hard to specialize in that um so i think for tokyo yeah it's definitely going to be a track focus for me because it's the first event the one you can control the most because the least amount of variables yeah. it's, it's the one i enjoy the least but at the same time you know like it's a really really um good event for me and and i will i'll go there and try win that and then um yeah the rest the rest is whatever will be will be Thank you. Um, how how has sports set you up for life in general? How, um, yeah, without me trying to answer it for you. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, no, no. What what have you learned from sport? But what also do you think it gives you in in your general life? Is probably how I best word it. Yeah, like I mean, like I was never that um, driven in in high school. I mean, like. I had a passion for sport um, and I kind of used that as, I guess, an excuse to not, um, to not give my everything in, in like my BCE, for example. But 
at the same time, you know, when I was 16, 17, I wasn't giving everything to my sport either. Like I, I guess I, the, the cogs hadn't turned in my, into my head. Um, and I hadn't realized, you know, the sacrifices, the disciplines, the dedication it takes to make it as an athlete. And I didn't realize those things until I was kind of 18, 19, 20. And that's when I started to have a lot of success in cycling. Um, obviously I had, you know, like success when I was younger, but that, that was purely probably just from a little bit of lucky talent and competitiveness. When you get older, you know, it's purely about who makes the sacrifices. And I think those are the things that, um, are actually the biggest changes in me. Um, and they definitely wouldn't have come if I wasn't doing sport. I mean, like I've always been, I've always been sporty, but you know, being, you know, a cyclist and being professional, it gave me this drive, this dedication to make sacrifices, to put in a lot of hard work, to be quite single-minded when I have to be. Um, but it also gave me like um, an understanding of working in a team, even with people you don't necessarily like. Like I've had teammates in the past, which I don't get along with, but you have to. You know, at the end of the day, you know, you're both there with the same goal. And I feel like those sort of um, skills really relate to, to real life, you know, in the workplace. But then also... Um, you know, I'm pretty confident that when I stop cycling, whatever career I choose, which there are a few in my mind. Um, you, you're leading to my next question. What, what, what do you see? And this is probably our last question, Alistair. So yeah. thanks for being so generous with your time. What do you see for yourself after cycling? Well, I've always had a, a dream of being a fireman. Um, it was kind of a goal when I was, even, you know, when I was finishing year 12, I, I kind of sat and thought to myself, you know, where do I go? What do I want to do? And I thought, well, I really want to be a fireman, but I also really want to be a cyclist. And I can't be a cyclist later, and I can always be a fireman later. So, you know, one has a time limit on it. I have to do it when I'm young. So, yeah, that's my immediate goal when I retire. I also want to be, I guess, an advocate for, you know, disability in sport, people trying to get into it, because I know it's such a hard, um, yeah, a hard area to get into and a hard place to realise. But, yeah, my biggest goal is, is being a fireman, and I think, you know, the characteristics that I've got from professional cycling are, are absolutely perfect for, the, for that role. You know, you've got to work as a team. You've got the same goal. You, you have to be able to react quickly. You have to be really a lot of attention to detail, really dedicated with your training, really dedicated when, when you're, I guess, on call. Um, these are all the things I obviously have talked to people and, and understand. I've never done the job, so I don't know the intricacies and I don't know the sacrifices, but at least, you know, being a sportsman's um prepared me to make like pretty hard sacrifices you know socially with family you know with diet with everything um and also just going into really dark dark places when you're trying to train um you know you have to kind of reach within yourself to to get the mess out of you i think that kind of really feeds into yeah pretty much any any workplace you're passionate about but in saying that you know it's pretty easy for me to do that as a cyclist because i am passionate about it and so i think if you can find something that you are um you do love and you do want to do it um yeah it doesn't really like the sacrifices don't really feel as much like sacrifices as they you know probably usually would thank you so much for your uh, joining us today and being part of our ssb uh q a um this man is an eight-time world champion he's got eight rainbow jerseys i'm just I find that amazing. A two-time Paralympic medalist, a 10-time national champion. Um, check him out. Go on Wikipedia, Google him. He is, you know, and there's just, I just hope so much that there's so much more for you to come. Uh, 
look forward to hearing about you over hopefully what there is a summer season of cycling in Australia and, and your pursuits if you if you if once we travel. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what you do in Tokyo. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Alistair. I could have talked maybe another hour but uh, with you, but uh, really appreciate it. And enjoy the Sunshine Coast and we hope to see you back in Melbourne soon. Yeah, no worries. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. I'll see people back in Melbourne on the 20th of December, hopefully. Yeah, and I might see you on Zwift too. Okay. <laughs> exactly. See you later. Thank you. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Uh, Bye. Everybody next week.